You don't look too excited. I'm gonna watch. I hope it's okay. I'll just suggest it. Thank you very much. And I want to start by saying um, there was a Jewish comedian known as Nathan Birnbaum. He was better known by his stage name as George Burns, which uh, may not mean anything to anybody here, but uh, at one point he was a very popular comic. And uh, he lived till 99. He died... uh, shortly before his 100th birthday. He was going to do a big, big show on his 100th birthday. And he said, I I had my opening line. It's a pleasure to be here. At my age, it's a pleasure to be anywhere. Yeah? So, it is a pleasure for me to be in Yeshiva or Yitzchak. Frankly, it's a pleasure for me to be anywhere. Because uh, it's now going to be just about two years that my grandson... I was having a Shalom Zohar in my house. I just came back from a trip to America. I wasn't feeling well. I thought I was coughing a lot. I, I did a speech uh, in the community Thursday night. Um, and, uh, and I came back. And I was coughing and, and, and shaking. And I was really nervous. I thought maybe I had the flu or something. Anyway... Uh, during the Shalom Zohar, I had to lie down, and I went to this coughing fit for about 40 minutes. I couldn't stop. And I finally had them call the Harnov Chodesh, and they, um, you know, they came, and they checked my, they gave me oxygen, I felt a little better, and they said, we thought maybe it was a heart attack, but your heart, you know, looks like it's good, you know, EKG, so uh, we'll bring you to the hospital because we think you might have pneumonia. So they take me in, they do a chest x-ray, they say, you have pneumonia. Right? I was very tired, you know, they leave me there. In the morning, they move me to the heart wing. So they said, we think you might have had a heart attack. Now, um, I don't know how it works in this country, in, America, in Israel, uh, there's not a concept that you really have to tell the patient anything about what's going on with him. This is for the doctors to discuss among themselves. Most of them are from, you know, the former Soviet Union where there was no idea of, you know, really anybody having any freedoms and choices. You just do whatever we say, and if you wake up and you don't have a kidney, that's just the price you pay. So, uh, anyway, they won't give me any information, you know. It was a very long shot. It's over Sunday. I finally said, that's it, I'm leaving. They said, you can't leave. You could die at any minute. So uh, he said, you're in very bad shape. And I was like, that's ridiculous. You know? So <coughs> comes Tuesday there, they have the uh, angiogram where they stick this wire into you and they look at your other arteries and a little screen. And the guy who's doing it is, you know, whispering to the guy next to him, I'm missing my grandson's breast for this, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, there's nothing there. I know there's nothing there. You know, I came in here for pneumonia. Next thing I know, they're sticking a wire in my arteries, you know. And they're whispering to each other, like, what do we tell them, you know? Like, he's going to look kind of stupid, you know? Anyway, he pulls it out, and he looks at me, and he says, I don't know how you're still alive. He says, two of your arteries are completely blocked. The other one is 70% blocked. You're not getting enough blood to stay alive. You should be dead. Now, I've had people say it to me over the years, but... <laughs> They have a different way of expressing it, and that's not usually from a medical point of view. You know? <laughs> so, um, so I was real. I was really surprised by that because you know I, I didn't think I was gonna I was gonna be almost dead. That was that was a surprise. So they said you need an immediate triple bypass. So they bring in the the doctor and he says tomorrow morning immediate triple bypass, and um, they uh, they cut me open and uh, you know saw through your breastbone. And, you know, cut open your leg, take out the artery, you know, it's a whole thing like that. And uh, as I was unconscious for the next two days, the surgeon had told my wife, I, we had one of the top surgeons in, in, in the world, do this. He says, you're lucky that you got me, because if it was anybody else, they, your husband would be dead, because the artery had collapsed into the heart. I couldn't even find it to bypass it. It's just I've done this so many times that I have enough experience that I knew where it should be. And so I was able to extract it to be able to bypass it. 
So I had two doctors who basically told me that I should be dead right now. So when I say it's a pleasure to be anywhere, uh, I really mean that. And I have to tell you that over these past two years, I've met people from all around the world who said, we heard about what you went through, and we davened for you. And I said, well, it worked, because I'm still alive. Uh, Baruch Hashem. So when people ask me, how are things going? I said, I have nothing to complain about. I said, nothing to complain about? I said, I'm alive. You, know, you get up in the morning, you get out of bed. After that, you get nothing else to complain about. You know? Because trust me, if you wake up and you're dead, it changes the whole day <laughs> in ways that I don't even choose to dwell on. So, uh, so it is such a pleasure. And of course, you know, anyone who knows me knows the tremendous respect that I have for every Wallerstein and his tremendous Messiris Nefesh and his, you know, just an exceptional human being. There are um, a small group of exceptional human beings uh, and Yidin, who are really holding Klai together. And in my opinion, Ari Wallerstein is one of them. So um, I, I'm privileged that I have this opportunity to be able to speak here in the yeshiva. And uh, those, are my, those are my words of introduction. I want to deal with a simple question. And because it's a simple question, it is the hardest question. That's how it always works. The simpler the question, the harder it is. Because everything is based on assumptions. When I was, uh, I was learning in a kailo, I was a shalmation. You know, in itself, you learn really, really well, and you're a genius for like 45 years, then you can become a shalmation. You know, you know, you sit there in the back of the room and answer questions, you know. And everybody would come to them, and he would just knock them off. He knew everything on his fingertips, you know. Whenever I came over, he got that uncomfortable look. You know the look when you know someone doesn't want to talk to you? I, I get it more often than you'd imagine. And you know, and it's like, you can see he's looking for an exit, you know, he wants to get out of here. And really I said to him, what's the matter? What do you get so upset when I come over? He says, Olavsky, you make me nervous. I said, why? I'm not the, 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 the best guy here, you know? He says, no, but you ask easy questions. And easy questions are the hardest ones to answer. Everyone else is going to come over and say, I make a hakira like this, and how exactly does team work, and this, you know, it's a lot of fun. He says, but I already know what you're going to ask me. That's why I look so nervous. He says, you want to know what these two lines and tasters are doing, right? I was like, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. No one knows what those two lines and tasters are doing. But you're the only one who will ask it, you know? Nobody else cares. But it's like, the really simple questions that are the easiest to answer. And that's why little children are so annoying, because they ask very simple questions. And we don't know the answers to simple questions, you know? We only know the answers to complicated questions. Everything's based on assumptions, you know? That's why I have that childlike quality that others call immaturity. But, um, so then I like to ask easy questions, like this, simple questions. I, I'm going to deal with a simple question, and I want to introduce it with a Rashi and Parshish Naya that uh, we're all familiar with. And uh, I'm going to have to use my reading glasses, even though this is the biggest print I could find, because my eyes uh, have started to go. Um, it ended up that uh, one of my eyes is far-sighted and one of them is nearsighted, and they don't work together. One of the many problems that I have, I collect learning disabilities like other people collect trading stamps. And I, 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 you know, I'm dyslexic, I'm ADD, I'm, I'm focusing issues, whatever it is. As soon as you find something, I've got it. I, mean, I get tested for it, I have it. Everything, everything is wrong with me. But, um, so one of the things is I just couldn't see, you know. So I went for, you know, eye exercises so that my two eyes work together and now I can't see anything. So... <laughs> Now I have reading glasses. But they're really great because the greatest thing about reading glasses you can do, I don't know about anybody else, I always had those for pain, but when I'd ask them a question, they would do this. <laughs> it's great. It's not unbelievable. For that alone, I'm glad that my eyes went. Anyway, I'm happy I'm alive. Anyway, I'll <laughs> Yeah, so we have over here, at the end of the story of Nayak, we go through the Esadurus from Noah to Abraham. And it says, todos no terach, which we know, todos is usually for somebody very important, right? todos terach. Terach holy is Avram, it's not holy as Right? So we know, terach has three kids Avram, Noch, Vaharan. Vyomas Haran al Pinei terach aviv. And Haran dies al Pinei terach aviv, literally on his father's face. 
That is so messy. So Mistama, it's not really that he died on his face. And Rashi's going to bring two pshatim. One that's going to learn Pnei as Lifnei, and one as Mipnei. Yeah? What does that mean? He died before his father. He died in the lifetime of his father. Yeah? Interesting, the Gura says, why is that so significant? He says he's the first person to die in the lifetime of his father since the Mabel. Yeah? Or, brings a Medrash, Sha'al Yedei Aviv Meis, Mipnei, Al Yedei Aviv Meis, Shekibel Terech Al Avram Benoi, Lifnei Nimrod, Al Shekosus Es Talmov. We all know the story. We learned it as kids. He broke all of his father's soul. Terach was not only an Ovedazara, he manufactured the Avodazara. How's business? Thank God. Right? That's what he did. If you wanted a God, you went to Terach and he made you a God. Right? So, Abraham figures out a Kodesh Baruch at the age of three. One of the greatest intellectual accomplishments ever. Ever. I had a kid once in Ursamaf uh, who told me that, uh, that uh, when he studied sociology, they said all religions are copycats. They copy from each other. He says the only thing that Cain knew was the idea of monotheism. And every monotheist in the world got it from Abraham. So he figures it out on his own. So he's looking around the store and he, and he says, this, guy, how, this guy's God, this guy's God, this guy's God. They can't all be God. So he realizes it must be one all-powerful God. Now, how are you going to explain that to your father? That's his whole panosin, right? So he waits till Tarek goes to a God convention, and he takes a sledgehammer, and he walks around the house, and he smashes all the... So looks at one big guy, sticks the hammer in his hand, and waits for him to come home. So his uh, father sees he destroyed his business. He says, Abraham, what would you do? He says, Dad, it wasn't me. He says, no. He says, oh, you should have been here. All the gods came to life. And this one said, I'm the most powerful. He said, I'm the most powerful. The big guy said, oh, yeah? And he took the hammer and he smashed everybody. And Terach says, what are you talking about? They can't move and they can't talk. And Avram says, if they can't move and they can't talk, why do you pray to them? Devastating theological question. So what do you do when your son asks you a devastating theological question? You take him to the evil king Nimrod. Yeah? Today they put you in therapy, but it remains essentially the same. <laughs> Parents historically have never liked uh, theological questions from their children. <laughs> and Nimrod says what most kids do when they ask these devastating theological questions. Nimrod says, what's wrong with you, kid? Why can't you be like everybody else? Just pick a god and worship him. He says, well, I'll tell you what the problem is. There are so many to choose from. He says, well, you can choose my god. Who's your god? My god is fire. He says, well, why do you choose fire? He says, because I love power. And fire burns and destroys everything. So fire is my God. Okay, he's going to be a difficult guy to get along with. Siram says, you want power? Yeah. And fire is power? Yeah. They want to worship water. It's so powerful, it can put out fire. That's a good one. I didn't think of that. Okay, no problem. We're switching to the water God. Everybody, water God. My, my, water God. Solomon says, wait a second, water's power? He says, yeah. He says, then why don't you worship the clouds? They're so powerful, they can produce water. He says, oh, that's a good point. Maybe we'll switch to the water gods. Wait a second, what now? If you're going to pray to the clouds, why don't you pray to the wind? It's so powerful, it can blow the clouds away. He says, okay, kid, I see where you're heading. I'm going back to fire, right? <laughs> Some people have no sense of humor. And two guys grab a rum, and they say to him, okay, wise guy, let's see if your all-powerful, invisible God can save you from my God. And they lead him off to the Kirshanaish. Yeah? And they bring him. They're about to throw him in the fire. And Haran is saying to himself, How do we know this? This is a raya that Haran must have been a chassid. Because in every chassidish story, there's one guy alone in a room, and we know the entire conversation that takes place. So there's nobody else there. So it must be. That's why I figured this out. Anyway, so Haran Yoshev Arbebelibo, he says to himself, Im Avram Noitzayach, Hanim Yishaloi. Vim Nimrod Noitzayach, Hanim Yishaloi. I'm going to wait and see who comes out. If Avram comes out of that Kirchen Aish alive, I'm going to declare myself for Hashem. But if he dies, I'm switching sides. Okay, she Yinatsu Avram Amrulai. 
Lo haran. They say to haran. Mishal miyata. Whose side are you on? Amalem haran. Mishal abramani. I am on the side of Abraham. I believe in the one God. I am a monotheist too. They throw him in the Nisraf and he dies. And that's what it means. That's the Rashi. I was in a shear with Rabbi Meshach Shapiro and he said the following. He said, the Chazal tell us, whatever you learn, you have to learn it in order to be able to do it. And he looks at us and he quotes the following Pasuk. The world is emptiness and void and the darkness is on the water and the Spirit of God hovers above it. You know, pretty esoteric Pasuk. And he looks at us and says, what's the last size of that Pasuk? Which means that no matter how esoteric it may seem, no matter how obscure the halacha is, at the end of the day, you have to be a la'asais in your life today in 2015, or you would not be learning it. It's always a big problem. Because people learn, and they don't know why they're learning. Right? I don't know if anybody here has ever asked this, but you hear sometimes tell me the message. Rebbe, why do I have to know this? Why am I learning this? I don't have an ox, and I have no plans to buy one in the near future. I don't run through the streets with pictures. If I marry a woman, it'll be under a chuppah with a ring, not with a piece of silk of indeterminate value. If I divorce her, it'll be embased, and I won't throw it from my roof into her chutzah with catches on fire on the way down. Why do I need to know this? And by the way, it's an excellent question because if I'm learning something, it's lasis. It has to have something to do with my life or I would not be learning it. Today, not a not hundred years ago or five hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, it's got to have relevance to my life today right now. So when I read this Rashi right away, the Kash is the obvious Kash that everybody figured out already. How come Abraham gets declares himself for Hashem, gets thrown into the kitchen of Aish, and he survives, and Haran does the same thing, and he dies. And I know that as I'm talking, eh, all the brilliant individuals in this room are already coming up with Terutim, but I want to make sure that your Terutz meets these qualifications, which are, there's got to be a message for me today in the answer to this Gashem Rashi. Rashi brought this in for us today. Yeah? And I saw a lot of different answers in the Mepharshim, but for me, I got this answer, it's about 25 years ago now, I'm thinking, when I was giving a class on intermarriage, right? Now you have to understand, 15 years ago they did a study in America, and a majority of American Jews consider it racist to oppose intermarriage. I was going to speak for a campus organization an Orthodox organization on a campus, and they said, you cannot even mention the word intermarriage. If you do, people are going to walk out of the room. That's how upset people are about it. Um, the reform movement, not that that's a riot, but you know, every time they, they break down a particular gather, you know that the conservatives are going to do it in another 20 years. So Historically, that's what's happened. So... Um, you know, they've just decided to make intermarried couples rabbis. But even though they're intermarried, you know, you could be a rabbi. So, I don't know if that means that the Jew or the non-Jew is the rabbi. I don't know how that works exactly, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a powerful statement. You know, there was a time when, in, when, when the reform, uh, you know, fought against intermarriage. They made a film in the 1970s about this guy sitting shiver because his daughter got intermarried. I mean, you know, it's so far gone now, you know. So you go to give a class on intermarriage, it's very difficult, it's very emotional, you know. They might be dating non-Jews, their parents might be intermarried, certainly they have relatives. It's a very hard class to give. It gets very emotional, you know, people get very upset. So I start giving this class on intermarriage. I'm five minutes into the class when this girl bursts into tears and runs out of the room. Now I was shocked, because it usually takes me 20 minutes before anybody bursts into tears and runs out of the room. Five minutes was a record. So 
I asked her afterwards what I said that upset her so much so I could use it again. And she said, no, it's not you. And I said, too bad. She <laughs> says, what is it? Because this is just an emotional topic for me. I said, why? She says, I come from a strong Jewish background. I said, what does that mean? So, well, you know, I, I had a bat mitzvah. We went to synagogue on the high holidays. Um, we had a Passover Seder. We had the electric menorah in the window, you know. We had all the good Jewish trappings, and I always knew I would in, never intermarry because my Judaism was so important to me. But I went off to high school. I dated some non-Jewish boys, but I knew nothing would come of it because my Judaism was so important to me. Fine. I went to university. I met a nice non-Jewish guy, and I was dating him for two years, and I fell in love. Now, of course, she didn't say it like that. That's how a guy would say it. She said it like this. And then I fell in love. Now, I'll explain what that means, because I have eight daughters, and I speak girl. I'm bilingual. <laughs> I was going to open my own seminary. I was going to call it Orlovsky. Anyway. <laughs> you understand. Um, John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, who's much more of an expert on marriage than I am, because he's been married four times, I've only been married once. So, um, he says that men and women communicate completely differently. Men communicate to give across information and ideas. Women communicate to be able to, you know, uh, establish a relationship. There's relationship in the words, you know? So that when you ask a guy to do something, he's like, no problem. Because he sees it as a challenge, you know? Are you man enough to take out the garbage? No problem. When you ask a girl, she thinks it has something to do with a relationship. And she's like, it'll be my pleasure. Okay? <laughs> All right, that might be. Anyway, so they, they communicate in different ways. You know, I've seen this, you know. Um, so, uh, so I understood what she was saying right away. She says, I dated him for two years and I fell in love. And what she was saying is, it's not my fault. And don't judge me because I wasn't planning to fall in love. I can't tell you how many times I hear this from people. I wasn't planning on falling in love. And I said, you find someone intelligent and attractive. You date them for two years. Why do you think you'll grow to despise them? Do you understand there's at least a possibility that you might fall in love? I said, did any of your parents get married without dating? Every date could lead to a marriage. Any of your parents get married without dating? I asked this question to groups in the intermarriage class for years. One time a guy raises his hand. I said, your parents got married without dating? He says, yeah, they're Hasidish. <laughs> I said, what are you doing in an intermarriage class? <laughs> you fivish, Danish, take Mary O'Reilly, do you? I said, okay, the, the, the rest of you, the Lithuanian. <laughs> Did your parents get married without dating? I said, Nobody plans to fall in love. And I said, you know, you date a non-Jewish person, what do you do if you fall in love? So one of the guys says, you know, well, if I find myself starting to fall in love, I'll break it off. I said, that, invite me, I want to watch this, you know. Mary O'Hara, yeah, I can never see you again. Why? Because I'm starting to love you. Isn't that good? No, when you were just some chicks, it was fine, but I'm starting to have some actual emotions for you, so bye. I said, I don't think even you're that shallow. And his friend says, you don't know him like I do. <laughs> so fine. I said, but this girl is not. She's dated that for two years and she falls in love. So what's she going to do? So she tells him that if he'll convert, she'll marry him. You know, it's a very common Jewish response. We figure nobody else cares about their religion either, so why don't you convert? You know what I mean? Right? So they were conservative, found a six-month conversion course. He signs up. In the meantime, they move in together, open up joint bank accounts. She gets a job in his town. They start planning towards the wedding. He finally starts the course. He's halfway through the course, and he says, I can't go through with it. She says, what do you mean? I didn't realize my mother would be so upset. I didn't realize my Catholicism really meant that much to me. I can't go through with it. If you want, I'll marry you the way you are. If you want, you can convert to Catholicism, but I can't go through with it. So she looks at me and she says, and I broke it off. And that's why this is such a hard topic for me. And I said to her, why did you break it off? Now, by the way, those of you considering a career in Rabbanus, that's the wrong answer. You're supposed to say, good for you, proud Jew. You might even want to jot that down. But uh, just like when you go to a doctor, you don't know what place in his class he graduated. He might have come in dead last. 
Same thing is true about rabbis. In any event, I said, so why did you break up with it? Because, because my Judaism is so important to me. I said, what does that mean? She says, you know, the holidays. I said, you can be intermarried and have a Seder. They even have a Haggadah for the intermarried couple. I, I sort of advertise. You know, I said, you can be intermarried and, and put a menorah in the window. You know, what does it mean? She said, I don't know. I said, well, let me ask you a question that Jews have had to answer too many times in history. Someone pulls out a gun and puts it to your head and says, Jew, convert or die, what would you do? We've all heard this question many times. She never heard the question. She thinks about it, she looks at me and she says, I would let myself be killed. And I said to her, Nebuch, you broke up with the man you love, you're prepared to die for something, and you don't know what it is. And suddenly I realized what Rashi was trying to tell us. You know why Avram went into the kitchen of Aish? Because he believed there was something in this world important enough to die for. You know why Haran went into the Kibshan Aish? Because Avraham did. And if we gain nothing else than this, this evening, I believe the whole thing is worthwhile. Don't ever go into a Kibshan Ha'esh. It is very hot and you could die. But you went in because he went in, or as my mother used to say, if everybody jumped off the bridge, you jump off the bridge? Yeah? What is that supposed to mean? It's supposed to tell us like this. You know why most people are, are Jewish? Because most people are Jewish. And I'll take it a step further. You know why most people are from? Because most people are from. And most people do what most people do because that's what they do. And they don't stop to think, why am I doing this? I just do it. Mitzvah sanoshim ilimudai, as the Navi calls it. Yeah? You do what you do because you do what you do and that's why. There was a guy in Israel today, he is a Rosh Hashiva. But when he was a bacher, he put a sign on his dormitory door, anyone who gives the best answer to this question wins a case of beer. Why? Okay, so all these budding scholars gave great answers like, because, why not, you know. I said, who won it? He says, one guy gave the best answer, because that's how they did it in Europe. <laughs> doesn't make a difference. doesn't make what it is. That's how we, we do it, because that's what we do, and that's what we do, and that's what we do. And that's it. You don't ask any questions. That's how they always did it, you know? And it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter. It's right, it's wrong. It's, you know, that, that's what it is. It is what it is. And, and, and to have to stop and think, but why? Why am I doing this? Yeah? I was doing an Oreg Shabbos for a group of kids, a modern Orthodox community. But all the kids uh, come from homes, Shom Shabbos, Shom Kashmir, you know. And uh, I was the Oreg Shabbos speaker, you know, five to six minutes. After that, the crowd turns ugly and starts throwing little pretzel nuggets at you and stuff. You know? So I got to move fast. So I walk in Friday night and I say to these kids, I'm going to give you a challenge. I'll put two buttons in front of you. Push the button on your left. You'll wake up tomorrow morning, a nice kid in a nice family, same socioeconomic structure. Just, you're not Jewish, your family's not Jewish. Push the button on the right, you'll stay the way you are. I said, my guess is if I ask this in your yeshiva day schools, 60 to 70% of the kids would push the button on the left and choose not to be Jewish. Right? Confrontation, always good for teenagers, right? They all just look at me. I was like, what? I said, Rabbi, how could you talk to us like that? Everybody would push the button on the left. <laughs> so it's a Friday night and I'm in a room full of Orthodox kids who would all rather be Christian. So I said, why is that? Which is not fair, because I was asking a teenager to think, which is not what we train you to do. That's not what the purpose of high school is. The purpose of high school is to repeat whatever we say, preferably in the same exact words. You all know this. Everyone knows this. Well, we pretend not. Whenever an adult asks the question, we look at him and try to figure out what he wants us to say. Like anyone who ever interviewed for a yeshiva in Israel. I'm looking for a place where I can grow. <laughs> I had a friend of mine who runs a seminary, and after like the 17th girl said that, he goes, why, what's wrong with you now? <laughs> Nothing. Then what do you want to grow? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what are you doing this to me? Like, That's always the answer, you know? You don't say I'm looking for the place with the lowest, the latest curfew, you know? I'm going to the place where my friends are going, you know? I heard there's easy alcohol. You know what I'm I want to grow. <laughs> Did you say what you think, you know? 
I said, why is that? Why don't you want to be Jewish? So they didn't know what, what they, they looked at me like, what does he want us to say? I said, it's easy. You hate being Jewish. Uh, you can't say that. It's true, but you can't say it. You know, Everyone has to pretend we're having a good time. So uh, one, guy, one, one girl says, oh, I love being Jewish. It's the, Shabbos is the only day I get to sleep. And let's face it, the way some people keep Shabbos, it's indistinguishable from a coma. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they come home, and like this time of year, you could be in bed by like 6.30. Oh, it's great. It's like being dead. You know what I mean? You wake up late, catch the end of davening, you have a quick lunch, go back to sleep. You know, you slept for most of the day. It was a real spiritual experience. You know? you know, people say, "I don't know. I don't feel anything on Shabbos." I said, "You're unconscious. How are you supposed to feel anything?" You know, but uh, but okay. You know, Shabbos. Uh, you know, I said, "Listen, Gentiles, take the phone off the hook and take a nap." Okay, you know, you don't have to be Jewish to sleep. She was devastated. That was the only thing she had going for her. You know, I said, "Let me guess." You love being Jewish because there's so many things you can't eat. No, 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 I know. Because there's so much stuff you can't do on Shabbos. Oh, no, I know because you really love learning Tysus. Oh, no, no, I know. They're like, okay, you're right, we hate it. <laughs> so why do we do it? We have to because our parents make us. So then why are you a Jew? I don't know. So you're saying if I was born a Christian, I'd be a Christian. If I was born a Muslim, I'd be a Muslim. I said, that's right. I said this story over in a prominent Beis Yaakov seminary in Yerushalayim and after I finished talking, two-thirds of the girls came over and said, yeah, you're right. I'm a firm Jew because I was born a firm Jew and if I was born a Christian, I'd be born a Christian I'd be a Muslim, I'd be a Muslim. I don't know why I'm a Jew. So I said, come on, you're girls. Pretend this is a test. Why are you alive? Why, what are you in this world? Oh, so that was easy. Avodah Hashem. What does that mean? We have to serve God. Why? Because uh, he needs us to, to dive into him and to do mitzvahs. I said, I thought he's infinite. If he's infinite, he doesn't need anything. <laughs> so one girl says, you mean I'm paying $25,000 tuition and they're not telling me why I'm a firm gym? <laughs> I said, well, talk to them. Maybe you can get some money back and go shopping. You know? <laughs> So you understand what this means? This means that whether we're having a yeshiva education, whether we're having a, you know, a basic education, but whatever the best education is that we can produce, or whether you're, you know, a girl who's got almost no Jewish education, and I ask you the question, why are you a firm Jew? The answer is because. I was born a firm Jew, and that's it. That's the best. So... I look at my watch, my only shop is about six minutes. I know the pretzel nugget is about to fly. I said, listen, I'm done. They said, wait a second, Rabbi, we know how it works. You can confuse us for the whole time. At the last minute, you have to give us a self-satisfying answer so we can forget we've ever seen you. Because <laughs> I don't want to be left with like a question, you know, make me feel uncomfortable. You know? I said, well, come on, you guys all have a yeshiva education. Why do you have to be a from Jew? <coughs> so a guy says, oh, I know why. Because otherwise, God will burn you in hell forever. Now, there was the first positive thought that I had. I asked somebody once, there was a guy in Israel, he went to one of these yeshivas for the religious and emotionally challenged. And uh, it was second year, so he was more or less sober. And uh, I said, What's it like when you die? He says, You know, you go to a beach, um, there's a cold beer, and he continued developing the picture. I'm sure you can figure it out for yourself. Suffice it to say, it was closer to the Muslim conception than the Jewish conception. <laughs> I always need a few minutes for that one to move around the room. Anyway, <laughs> hey, at this point, you can get credit from Empire College for you know comparative religion. I think <laughs> that joke alone is enough. Anyway, so um, I'm just kidding. You can get a master's from Toro, but anyway. <laughs> more bridges I can burn tonight, but anyway. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you know, I, I, I said, uh, is that what you really believe? He goes, no, that's what I wish. I said, so what is Olam Haba really? He says, you sit on a cloud and you play a harp. <laughs> I said, do you like harp music? He says, not particularly. <laughs> so, so what are you going to do? He says, like an electric harp, you know? Put my halo on sideways. <laughs> Rocking on cloud nine. I said, okay. So if you're going to get a cloud in the harp, and if you're bad, he says, then God burns you in hell forever. I said, uh, that makes sense to you? Yeah, that's what I always said. I said, you know what that's like? A father says to his daughter, I always bring an example of daughter because I have eight daughters. It's one of the reasons I travel. <laughs> Only chance I have of getting in the bathroom to myself. Anyway, 
So, um, uh, you know, you go into your daughter's room and you say, listen, this place is a mess. If you clean it up, I'll buy you a new outfit and I'll take you out for dinner. And if you don't, I'll break you on the beach until you're bloody. I said, what do you do? I call social services. The man is insane. I said, but that's how you picture a Kurdish barrel. If you're good, you get a glad in the heart, but if you're bad, he burns you in hell forever. Our dysfunctional father who art in heaven. But let's face it. Let's be honest. Isn't that what our entire chinuch was? Mine was, for sure. I, had, I was once in the yeshiva. I won't mention where or what, but, you know, I was having one of those winters, winters man, you know, it never ends. There were like three or four others that year. I don't know what happened. It just, it just it wouldn't end. I think we're doing Yibamas. The Masechta never ends. Everything's a Zika. I don't know what it was. It just the whole thing was just going on forever, you know. So you get sort of sick with like Ferris Bueller type symptoms, you know. I think it's mono. I don't know why it's not showing up in the blood test, you know. And just hang on. that. So my Rebbe came to give me dude, you know. And he says, David Cohen, you have to get up. You have to learn. I said, Rebbe, what's the point? I'm just going to go to get him anyway. And he said, that's true. <laughs> but he saw it was a little down, so he had to chill me up. So he said, focus on the following, that at 350 degrees you bake, but at 400 you burn. Boy, did I feel a lot better. <laughs> that meant if I learned stark and I davened three times a day and I did everything I was supposed to do at the end, I would just bake. And that's why, well, come on, this is that joyous time of year that we all look forward to, the Yom Narayim. <laughs> that happy, joyous time when everybody goes into shul and just stands there, moving their foot from one side to the other. I can't stand anymore. Counting the pages, 800 pages, I'm never going to make it. And one point, when I was a kid, I realized half of them are in English. It's only 400 pages. We'll be out of here in no time. I went to a show with a cousin. Let me see, he's on this word now for about 15 minutes. I don't think we go home to Hanukkah, you know? The idea was that if you could stay in shul long enough and listen to the chazan, and God felt so bad for you, he forgave what you said. You don't have to go to hell, you've already been there. Then, then you get older and you start following along the fields and it gets much worse. Come to the Sanatoka, you know? Chazan, you know it's important because my father always said, where's the place? I never knew where the place was, you know? So look, follow along is important. The chazan will get up and go, me yeah Oh me yamus Now there was a subtle message there and I don't know if you picked up It's subtle I understood what he was saying of course someone might live but you are gonna die and the choir goes die 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 I was a teenager I was like Oh man, I'm gonna die? What a bummer, yeah. Well, it's not over yet, now you get to pick the way you're gonna go. Well, fire's kinda hot, you know, you probably tread water for a while, you know. Who by sword and who by earthquake? I don't know, what are they going to do with the sword exactly, you know? Who by storm and who by pestilence? I don't know what this pestilence is. Never heard of anyone dying of pestilence. We'll take the pestilence, Bob. But the message is you're going to die a horrible death because God hates you, you miserable sinner, unless you repent. Repent! Repent! Get that on your hands and knees and cry and beg and then you could get off with just a serious illness. So everyone walks around depressed. Hey, Dad, what's with the app on honey? First week here. How does it look? Doesn't look too good. <laughs> if it was a Wednesday, I'm wearing a suit. I have a non-Jewish neighbor. He says, hey, Dave, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the synagogue today. He says, it's not Saturday. I said, no, this is a special day where I have to go and afflict myself. He says, why? I said, because I'm evil. Oh, I don't know. If I see you tomorrow, I have no idea. Any word on the pestilence? Should take an earthquake. What was I thinking? I can stay out of earthquake areas. <laughs> okay, that's it. Now you know. Now you have all the answers. Why should I be a friend Jew? The best answer is because. <laughs> that's the best answer. And if you have a little bit more Jewish indications, because otherwise you're going to burn in hell. And that's about it. Those, by the way, are the best answers. There are also bad answers. <laughs> I, I'm in the business a long time. Because what do you do? How do you, how do you tell somebody whether they should be Jew? We've been around for so long. 
Oh, I'm sorry, was there some ancient people contest I entered, you know, I wasn't aware of? I must have won by now. <laughs> Who are we still running against, you know? Jews have made wonderful contributions to society. So did the Etruscans. Then they stepped aside and made room for the Romans. So let's make ourselves a banquet and give ourselves an award and move on, you know? We have to preserve Jewish culture. Why? Because otherwise we'll die out. Why? Because nobody likes it. That's why. Do you find Italians raising money so that people should eat lasagna? No, people like lasagna. But you have to pay people to eat the filter fish because they'll wonder that question. And don't tell me this never occurred to you. What is the goo in the jar? <laughs> that stuff is nasty. And you're like fishing around in there. There's nothing natural here. <laughs> yeah, but if you pay me money, then I'll crank up the old plesmer, dance the whole run, eat your filter fish. And I say, if nobody likes it, let it die. Yeah, who cares about culture here? Um, that's about it. Now you have the best answers of why a person should be a Jew. Why should I be a friend of you? <clears throat> so I want to tell you in the time that we have remaining, the real reason why a person should be from Jew. And like I say, it's the simplest answer. And because people don't know it, that's why every 10 years they do a Jewish population study. And every 10 years they find that the fastest growing group is not Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Hasidic, New Age. Those aren't the groups that are growing. The fastest growing group are people who are dropping out of Judaism. I'm not a Jew anymore. I just don't care. You know this better than me. You know what's going on out there. Parent tells a kid, you know, you got to be a from Jew. It's because you were born a from Jew. So I'm the first smart Jew in 3,000 years. I figured out I don't have to do this. But then you'll burn in hell. I don't believe in hell. Then you'll really burn in hell. <laughs> I'll take my chances. <laughs> I'll save up and invest in cyrogenics. I'll have them freeze me. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, well, what do you do? So here's the real answer. And this is the Masil Shisharm. Why am I quoting the Masil Shisharm? Because I have recordings of my Shirm Masil Shisharm available for download from my website, rabbiorlovsky.com. This whole thing is just an infomercial. Anyway... And uh, the Masil Sharm is, of course, a book that was written to teach you how to become perfect. I finished it a number of times. I got stuck on another one, but once I got that down, now it was perfect. Anyway, so uh, I want to tell you the first two lines of the Sefer. This is it. You all know it, just you don't know what it means. Nobody knows what it means. Any book that translates things either with words like watchfulness and zeal or alacrity and... Um, and uh, what's the other one? Um, whatever, some other crazy word that nobody ever uses. Nobody uses these words, you know. Um, you know, it, it's uh, alacrity and I have a great word for Zahir's um, vigilance. Vigilance. The only one who uses that word is Madai Moody. Constant vigilance. Anyway. So uh, you, can't, you can't make a game. So I'm going to give you the first two lines. I'll explain a few. The rest of it you're going to have to pay for. Yeah, okay. The root and the foundation of everything is to be clear to the point of truth. Why are you alive? Such a simple question and so hard to answer. Trust me, it is so hard to answer. I was talking to a group of guys in their 20s, secular guys, about marriage. And I said, you know, when you get married, it's important that you and your wife have the same goals in life. Does anyone know what their goal in life is yet? And the guy says, I do. I said, what's your goal in life? He says, I want to be a dentist. I said, that's not your goal in life. He said, sure it is. I said, no, it's not. He says, I'm in dental school. I said, I'll prove it to you. You're 90. You're 100 years old. You're on your deathbed. They're writing a eulogy. You get to listen in. He was a dentist. He filled many cavities. He removed many impacted teeth. He was especially good with molars. The guy says, stop. I said, no, I'm getting to the best part. Your tombstone is a big tooth. And it says, here lies a dentist. The guy says, no, you misunderstood. I didn't mean that's my goal in life. I mean I'm going to earn my living from dentistry. Ah, that's not your goal. Right. What's your goal? Says, I have no idea. Whenever anyone asked me, I always said I want to be a dentist. And I said, good for you. You're the first one who ever called me on it, you know? 
because that's how we're all told. Here's a successful life. Go to university, get a profession, you know, make a lot of money, get married, you know, uh, you know, uh, buy a house, uh, get, have a few kids, and now you have a successful life. Now you're 40, 45, you have all that. What do you do now? Now you get old and die. There's nothing else to do. Some people figured out they could play twice. They divorce their wife, they get another one, they get another job, another house, you know what I mean? They go around the board two times, you know? Most people are not that dramatic. Most people just have a midlife crisis. Have you ever seen these people having a midlife crisis? I'm talking about the gray ponytail people out on the dance floor. Barely alive, barely alive. Uh, uh. You know the people? <laughs> They get themselves a sports car, but they're not so flexible. <laughs> trouble getting in and out. <laughs> this goes on for a while. It's pretty depressing to watch. And eventually they give it up, and they're just content to be old. Start wearing their pants up to here. Get the orthopedic sneakers. Take two minutes to sit down. <laughs> and fall asleep all the time. Reading the paper, watching TV, in the middle of a conversation. They're always falling asleep, and they always deny it. No, I wasn't sleeping. I wish I could sleep. I'm up a whole night. <laughs> what are you doing? Sleeping and they're always denying it. No, <laughs> and that's it. It's a slow... They're, they're, they're napping to death, you know? And uh, when you get to be my mother's age, she just turned 88 yesterday. She wouldn't be well. You reach the ultimate status symbol, which is comparing medications with other elderly people. This really... This, you know, the more medical science is struggling to keep me alive, you know? So, uh... So why are you alive? I said this over to a group once. A guy said, I heard this someplace once, and I couldn't remember where, and then he finds it. He sends it to me, a recording from a film called City Slickers with Billy Crystal, where he's talking to a third grade class, and he says to the third graders, enjoy this time of your life. It's the best part. Third grade. <laughs> your 20s are a blur. Your 30s, you get married. You have a couple of kids. You say, what happened to my 20s? Your 40s, you start to lose your hair, grow another chin. One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you can't go out anymore because the music's too loud. You'll have a minor operation. You'll call it a procedure, but it's an operation. 60s, you'll have a major operation. The music's still too loud, but you can't hear it anyway. 70s, you and the wife retire to Florida. Start having supper, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Lunch, 10 o'clock in the morning. Breakfast the night before. Wander around malls looking for the ultimate frozen yogurt. In the 80s, you'll have a stroke. You'll be taken care of by a Jamaican woman that your wife can't stand and you call mama. And then, that's life. So his, his answer was, go and be a cowboy. But listen, why are you alive? Sister Mr. Shoshone, figure out what you're doing in this world. We're not so good at that. Listen, let's, let's, let's face facts. When I was a kid, you saw a 70-year-old guy. He was an old man. He was walking with a cane. He was an old man. You know, if you saw somebody who was 80, he was like ancient. Today, 80-year-olds are running around. They're going on cruises. They're, they're, they're playing tennis. They're running around. You see 90-year-olds all the time. But Derechateva, you'll all live to 100. I'm not thinking about any Nisim in the flow. So, but Derechateva, you'll live to 100. You're going to plan your life till 40. Is that? Who do you want to be at the age of 100? What, what, what's the life you want to look back on? And everyone knows they want to live a great life. They just don't bother living it. But they want to look back on a great life. Nobody wants them to get up at their funeral and tell the truth. You know? Harry loves cigars. I saw this once at the Levite. Did you ever see Harry without a cigar? He loves cigars. And a scotch. If he had a cigar and a scotch, he would, and a newspaper. And, and Harry's lying there thinking, it's got to be something else. Come on. Come on. You know, I'm going to put a bottle of scotch on my tombstone. Like, you know, this is it. You know? And that's about it. Everybody wants them to remember they let it grab. A mafia hitman. You think they want him to tell the truth at his Leviah, you know? Vinny was a great killer. <laughs> he killed lots of people and always in creative ways. Remember one time he had a guy by the truth, you know? They're not going to say that. They're going to go, Vinny was a good friend. Vinny was loyal. Vinny was good to his mother. <laughs> something good to say. We all want to live. A guy once said to me, Rebbe, what are you hocking me? says, uh, okay, I don't have to be too exceptional. I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. I said, you know, you're right. By the way, I know you're in Shaduchim. I got a girl for you. Oh, tell me about her. 
which is okay, nothing special. <laughs> Good enough for you. <laughs> the guy says, no, I want to marry somebody special. I said, why? You don't want to be special. You're okay. She's okay. You have an okay marriage, a couple of okay kids. And when you die, they'll write on your tombstone, he was okay. <laughs> no, I want to live an exceptional life. No, you don't. You want to be okay. Do you really want to live an exceptional life? Then you have to be exceptional. Why are you alive? What are you doing in this world? And here's the answer, says the Masil Shasharm. <coughs> to get pleasure from Hashem and divide and, and enjoy the light of Hashemina. This is the greatest pleasure and delight that there is. I read this to a group of Yeshiva guys. I said, What did he say? Why are we alive? And without hesitating, they said, Avodas Hashem. <laughs> nope, those words do not. Listen again. To get pleasure from Hashem and enjoy the light of Hashemina. Because that is the greatest pleasure and delight that there is. Why are we created? To get the light of the Shekhinah. Wrong. I, I definitely heard light of Shekhinah. Okay, now listen to the whole sentence. Okay, I know it's taxing. To get pleasure from God and enjoy the light of the Shekhinah because that's the greatest pleasure there is. Which means, I'll rewrite the sentence for you. You were created for X because X is the greatest pleasure that there is. But if the greatest pleasure is Y or Z, that's why you were created. You were created for only one reason. To get the greatest possible pleasure that there is. Party till you die and the party keeps going. So great, what am I wasting my time here for? I should be out fulfilling my ultimate purpose. Ah, there's always a trick. You weren't created to get a pleasure, you were created to get the greatest pleasure. I'm happy with whatever I get. Oh, really? Watch when someone goes to a Chinese restaurant. They don't really know what they're ordering. Hung dung dung ding bing dung ding. Yeah, I don't know what I'm ordering. And you get like bok choy and boiled chicken and you keep adding soy sauce to it. Next table, something's on fire and they're dancing with swords. You're like, can I get... I didn't know. I didn't know that. Please, please don't make me eat. (laughs) You go and you order for dessert a piece of cake. It's like dry and soggy and it tastes like rum. I don't know how they do it. Next table, there's whipped cream and sparklers. And you know, can I switch? I don't want this. I don't want to... Please, nobody wants just anything. You want the greatest thing that's going to come along. What's the greatest pleasure there is? The great, because not all pleasures are created equal. Take something simple, simple for a guy, and so hard for a Jew. I've seen this. A buffet. Goyim just don't get it. They walk over and take a plate of food. No Jew does that. A Jew looks at that same buffet and says, I could eat all that food. It's paid for. I just physically can't. So the goal is to eat the most of the most expensive thing. No Jew walks over and takes a plate. They walk around the whole thing. <laughs> Planning it out like a military campaign. Tasting here, sniffing here. You know. That's cheap. I can get that anytime. I'm throwing up anytime. Oh, feel. <laughs> then they start collecting plates. And the table starts out. And then you see them start to expand like the Incredible Hulk. You know. <laughs> Until they're like, I'm so stuffed, I couldn't eat another thing. Oh, look, they brought out the dessert table. Here I come. <laughs> Roll me over. <laughs> Even then, you can't eat it all. You're going to have to make choices. You can't eat it all. You're going to have to make choices. And all of life is going to be making choices. I, I meet people in Israel, they're, they're traveling the world. They go to India, they go to China, they come to Israel. So when they're in Israel, somebody picks them up, they come to us for a Shabbos meal, you know. And they're like, oh, the greatest thing is traveling. I said, maybe. But you'll never know what it's like to be part of a community. Maybe that's better. I meet people who flip from relationship to relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they say, tell me how great that is. Maybe. But you'll never know what it's like to have a 25th wedding anniversary. Maybe that's better. But, but you don't know. Because you didn't try it. You know? People are constantly being offered choices. And let's face it. These are maestro shabachol yom, even in the firm community. When people have an opportunity to have a office affair and they turn it down, that's because they decide their marriage is a greater pleasure than this. They're they're making a choice. And some people make the wrong choice. And I asked them, what were you thinking? And they said, I wasn't. Because I'm not really thinking. People, most people don't live the life they want. They live the life that happens. Because people don't stop and think about it. What's the best that I can do? They just take the next thing and the next thing and they end up somewhere. As one 50-something-year-old fellow said to me, I don't know what a meaningful life is, but it's not this. I'll tell you that much. 
So why did you end up with this life? Because I never stopped to think about it. I just made one choice after another. I didn't decide what I want to be at the end of my life. I don't know where I want to go. I don't know what the best is. Said to Masil Shashem, look, the world is filled with pleasures, and you have to agree with me that the greatest pleasure is an infinite pleasure, a pleasure that gets better and better and better and better, and you have no idea what I'm talking about. We don't even know what an infinite pleasure is. Right? What do people list as a pleasure? Obviously from its sales, pretzels. Yeah? How many pretzels can a person eat when it's still enjoyable? Three, maybe four. Then your teeth get covered with pretzel gunk and everything just tastes the same, just like you know, crunchy and salt and you have no taste, you know. And you always see people like push them away, get these away from me, and then they pull them back thinking they'll taste better and they never do. It's but imagine a bag of pretzels that never ran out, you live forever, you never get full, and there's no pretzel gunk. And each pretzel tastes better than the one before. <laughs> That's an infinite pleasure. You can't even imagine such a thing, but if you can imagine such a thing, that can come from only one place, like Kodesh Baruch From the infinite source, you can get the infinite pleasure, where it gets better and better and better and better and better. You know, you know, sad thing, what do you hear this describe? People who have these near-death experiences, that's exactly what they say. They see them as they're going through this tunnel, they see this light, and it just gets better and better and better, and then, against their will, they're brought back down to this world. You know? That's the pleasure. And let me say a quick point. In this world, not when you're dead, now. You can get it now. But people don't know that. Yeah? People think, you know, they daven. They, they, I met a middle-aged Israeli businessman on a plane on his way to join his wife in the ashram where they were studying Buddhism and meditation. And I said, why? He says, you reach a point in your life where you want more than just the physical pleasures. You want something spiritual. I said, did you ever consider Judaism? He laughed at me. He said, Judaism is about doing mitzvahs. It has nothing to do with spirituality. Unfortunately, for many people, that's true. But what do you do with the Gemara Brachos that says they spent an hour before Shmona Esrei, an hour saying Shmona Esrei, and an hour coming down from the experience? That means by the time they finished davening, they were so high up in Shemaim, it took them a whole hour to get back down to this world. You know? Why, why, why do we keep Shabbos? The Torah tells us every seven days, there's a wave of Kedusha that fills the world, and we want to tap into that Kedusha. Why do we eat kosher? It's amazing when I talk to groups and they tell me, for, for health and hygiene, I said, you and I are obviously eating in different restaurants, because there's a lot of stuff going on, but it ain't health and hygiene, you know? Said, the Torah tells us that if you eat treif, you have tim tumalev, you'll be closed off from ruchnis. I have a friend of mine who's an armchair Kabbalist, and he teaches beginners, you know, in the Rismech, and, you know, and uh, he does his party trick at the end. He says, now I'm going to go around the room and tell you who keeps kosher and who doesn't. And he's always right. Said, How did you know? He says, because I threw in one advanced idea, and these people got it, and these people didn't, because they eat treif. So they're closed off to ruchnis. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants you to have this unbelievable feeling that will lift you out of this world. You know what it means to lift you out of this world? I had a friend of mine who was going to England and uh, he's flying, the sky is blue, the sun is shining. He goes beneath the clouds. He was in London for a week. He didn't see the sun once. Which happens. This is the reality. Ask getting English person, I'll tell you this, you know. Which is why English people are the way they are. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just <laughs> McDonald's had to change their international policy. I read this in the New York Times. In every country, they give you a change and say, thank you, have a nice day. And this was infuriating Englishmen because they didn't want to have a nice day and they resented being told to. So they changed it. You don't have to say it in McDonald's in England. Just have them to change it. Go, right then. <laughs> That's fine, you know. I want anybody to be happy. Yeah. So he's there for a week, and then after a week he gets in the plane, he takes off, he gets above the clouds, and the sun is shining and the sky is blue. I said, you know, the sun was always shining and the sky was always blue. You just didn't know how to get above the clouds. All of Torah and Mitzvahs are there to get us above the clouds so we're in that light. What I once heard somebody describe as the half-smile that plays on the lips of Gedoli Torah. If you ever had this course to know Gedoli Torah, you know they're not quite in the same world that we are. They're someplace else. That's the koyach of what Torah and mitzvahs are supposed to be. <coughs> and if you don't know this, you missed the whole thing. That's what Mishra is telling us. Yisodah chasidus v'shorosh 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 v
the Russian Minister of Education asked her, Chaim Volozhin, at what age do you Jews start educating your children? And he said, 20 years before they're born. Because we're deciding today what we're going to tell our kids in 20 years from now. And when our kids come to us and say, why should I do this? And we tell them, because you're going to burn in Gehenna, it's not going to do it. And if we tell them, because we have something better than everybody else has out there, and I'll show you how to do it, I'll show you how to live a life that's better than everybody else, then we have an answer to give ourselves, our children, our grandchildren, when they want to know why we should be from Yidman. And it's Hashem, and that's Chus. We'll be able to work on our own avodas Hashem and be able to become the people that will be those happy Jews who, given a choice between being born a Christian or a Muslim or anything else, they'll choose to be a Torah Jew because it's better than anything else out there.